Over the last few months, we've been preaching consecutively through the book of Deuteronomy. And today we're taking a detour. Today we're going to take a step out of Deuteronomy. We're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you would turn there, 2 Corinthians 8. Last week, Dustin preached on Old Covenant tithing from Deuteronomy chapter 14. And the reason he did that is that was just the next passage as we preached through the book of Deuteronomy. And last week, Dustin also said that although we have touched on the topic of tithing through preaching through books of the Bible, this church, as far as he knows, has never intentionally preached a standalone sermon on the topic of tithing or giving. Well, today that streak comes to an end. Today I will be preaching a standalone sermon devoted to this topic of Christian giving. And let me tell you why. You know, why are we doing this? And I got four reasons why. One, what better day to do that? We just heard from the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 14, about Old Covenant tithing. What better day than today now to preach on New Covenant giving, right? Second, this is really helpful. This is really helpful instruction on a very important topic that historically has had a lot of baggage and a lot of bad theology. Third reason, we believe that GCC, this church, needs to be strengthened in this area and that there are some in this church that are weak in this area. Reason number four is that we believe that GCC, this church, needs to grow in this area because our gospel opportunities and our ministry needs are growing. Praise the Lord. And so let's look at this topic. Let's start by praying for God's grace in this area that we're going to look at. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of grace. This is your name. You're full of grace, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Your your goodness is unsurpassed. You, You give bountifully, not because you desire return, but this is who you are. You are a giver. You give all mankind life and breath and everything. And your word says, and on top of all that grace, it says you actually give more. You give more grace. And so I pray that today, that you would give me grace right now to preach. And you would give this church right now grace to hear. And more than all of that, grace to act in the way that we see in this text and to glorify your name and give us the privilege of participating in this greatest of all endeavors that your glory would spread everywhere. Move our hearts, Lord. Move our hearts. Put it in our hearts. You're the only one who reigns over the hearts of men. Show yourself to be a God of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have an outline, if you don't have an outline, you should get one. If you have an outline, you see that I titled this sermon, The Grace of Christian Giving. And that little title conveys three important points of contrast 
that I'm trying to communicate from this text today. Number one is we're talking about giving, not tithing. We're talking about giving, not tithing. Christian giving is actually never referred to as tithing in the New Testament. And we're talking about Christians, not old covenant Israelites. We're talking about those who have the faith of Abraham, not those who have the DNA of Abraham. And third, we're talking about grace versus law. But the power, the power of obedience from the heart, not the letter of the law. The grace of Christian giving. That's what we're talking about. Why did we choose 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9? Because these two chapters contain the most comprehensive discourse on Christian giving in all the Bible with very specific examples, both good and bad, involving real churches and real people with real money and real ministry needs. And so I want to set that up for you. Like, What, what is the context here of these two chapters? Well, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth of four letters that Paul wrote to this church that we are aware of. He wrote th- this first letter known as the warning letter that we don't, have in, we don't have, but he sent it as a warning to the church not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so Paul gets word that that warning letter was misunderstood or maybe uh, just not taken seriously, along with the reports about division in the church, and therefore he then sits down and writes what we know as 1 Corinthians. They got that letter, and apparently they didn't respond to that letter very well. And that prompted, that response prompted Paul to go to them physically, and he made what he refers to as a painful visit. A painful visit visit where he is rejected by the church he retreats back to Ephesus and he writes a third letter known as the the tearful letter and in that tearful letter he expresses sorrow over the situation but he also sternly calls for their repentance and he sends that letter by Titus and here he is he's waiting on Titus to come back. How did they respond to that? Because, you know, we don't have t- telephones and texts and emails. He's waiting weeks, maybe months, for word from Titus. And, and, he, and he can't sit still. And he takes off and heads that way. And he ends up meeting Titus in Macedonia where he hears about this repentance in the church. And he joyfully begins to write this letter that we know as Second Corinthians. So he's he's writing from Macedonia, more than likely from Philippi, because he just couldn't sit still. And he left Ephesus to find Titus. And so he writes his letter, and he spends the first half of it defending his ministry. Defending himself as a new covenant minister of the gospel and an apostle to Jesus Christ. He's having to do that because there's these false apostles that are trying to undermine him, trying to discredit him. Paul in all kinds of different ways. And in chapter 7, Paul begins to rejoice over the church's response. They've now repented. They've expressed godly grief and genuine repentance. And now, right here in chapter 8, Paul seizes the moment and he begins to stir them up. He wants to stir up the church to renew their desire to give to this collection he's taken up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They're suffering in Jerusalem because, probably because of famine and probably because of persecution. And this is something the Corinthian church had actually started talking about a year earlier. But the strife within the church and the strife with Paul had kind of apparently made that desire grow cold. The desire to give was now reluctant so now what we have here in chapter 8 
are holy inspired words of admonishment and exhortation to a church that's reluctant to follow through in giving. And God chose to exhort them through a powerful example of another church or set of churches in Macedonia and through the ultimate example of Jesus Christ. Guess what? It worked. By God's grace, the Corinthian church became participants in this financial ministry of mercy to Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do is conspire with the Holy Spirit and make the same application that Paul's making here to Corinth. I want to make the same application here to Grace Community Church. So as we read and consider this passage, we need to see ourselves more like the reluctant Corinthian church. And I want us to pray, by God's grace, that we would become more like the Macedonian church. And, and more, of course, like Jesus Christ. That is the example most supreme. So let's read. Stand, if you will. Let's read God's word. Two long chapters. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches at Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this manner I give judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not, I do not mean that others should be eased and your and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who, who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us 
as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest to your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of of your contribution for them and all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You may be seated. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church. Now, I hope you can tell from that, the length of that passage, that there is no way that I can do exegesis on that, those, both those chapters. Right? So this is not going to be a thorough covering of two chapters from 2 Corinthians. My aim instead is to simply point out or pull out several principles about Christian giving, most of which actually originate in the first paragraph. And so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to hit some principles of Christian giving from this text. Number one, first and foremost, Christian giving is all about grace. Look at verse one. That opening phrase, we want you to know, brothers, starts this new topic on Christian giving. But notice what Paul says. He wants you to know. He wants you to know about the grace of God. 
He wants you to know that, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And so here we go. Paul doesn't start with an exhortation to give money. As a matter of fact, he doesn't start with giving at all. He actually starts talking about receiving, not giving. His opening line isn't about how much the Macedonians gave. It's about how much they received. And guess who the giver is? God. Verse 1, God. Paul's saying, we want you to know about how much grace God has given to the churches in Macedonia. Do you see that? Christian giving is all about grace. Paul is going to go through this extensive discourse on Christian giving. He doesn't even mention money once. But he mentions grace ten times. Christian giving is all about grace. It's about grace, the grace of God that's given to the giver. And it's about the grace of God that's given through the giver. And so let's start where Paul starts. Number two. This Christian giving is a manifestation of God's grace to the giver. This is the bulk of what I'm going to talk about today. He starts, Paul starts by highlighting the grace of God that actually produced the generosity in Macedonia. Notice what I said. The grace of God produced it. Look at these first two verses and see how it was the grace of God that actually provided the money and provided the means and the motivation to actually give. Verse 1, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. There's the source, the gift of God's grace. And what did God give them? He gave them, number one, the means to actually give. See that in verse 2. Their extreme poverty overflowed into a wealth of generosity. Now how did that happen? God did that. God did that. God gave them what they gave Paul. Just see that. You can't give what you don't have. Right? And, and, and what do you have that you didn't receive? In Deuteronomy, we've been going through Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses warned Israel to think rightly about what they have, to think rightly about all their material possessions. He says to them, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember The Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything belongs to God. Every good gift comes from God. And so the grace of God is what actually provides the gift to the giver, and that same grace is what motivates the giver then to give. You see how the grace of God is at work in all of this? Notice how they gave. Notice how the Macedonians actually gave. Look at their disposition. It says in verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The overflow of generosity comes from an overflow of joy. You see that? The overflow of generosity comes from an overflow of joy. And notice the overflow of joy came in a severe test of affliction. How did that happen? God did that. supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can turn severe affliction into overflowing joy that abounds in generosity. And so here's principle number three here. Christian giving is a fruit of the fruit of the Spirit. You remember that list, right? The list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does kindness have anything to do with generosity? Does goodness have any connection to generosity? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what else? Love does. What else? Joy does. Out of their abundance of joy overflowed a wealth of generosity. They gave because the Holy Spirit gave them joy. Christian giving is cheerful, my friend. God loves a cheerful giver, he says in chapter 9. Why? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he's the one who makes a cheerful giver. God loves what he makes. So number four, Christian giving is an overflow of gospel joy. Not not the joy you get from eating ice cream, but the joy of really believing the gospel. It comes from the joy of salvation. Paul says this, Explicitly in chapter 9, verse 13, he says those people in Jerusalem, they're going to glorify God. You know why? Because they know that your gift, quote, comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, verse 14, it's a result of the surpassing grace of God that's upon you. And then he closes with this burst of gospel praise. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, which of course is Christ. And so Christian giving is motivated by the gospel, not the commandment. Paul's going to use that example of Christ in a minute. To stir them up to sacrificial giving. And so I want you to see what he's doing here. Like a doctor or a nurse checks the pulse for life. He's checking the Corinthians for a sign of grace. He's testing their faith. He exhorts them at the end of this letter to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. Guess what? He's doing that now. He's using the same language that he does at the end of the letter. He's using the same language now. In verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove or to test by the earnestness of others Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. Paul is examining the genuineness of their love. How? By comparing their response to the response of the Macedonians because there's one God who gives this grace. You got it? They got it. You got it? Prove it. This is what he's doing. This is not a command. This is a test. It's actually a comparison. You look at chapter 8, verse 24. So give proof, he says. Prove it. Let me see that grace. Let me see the grace that God gave the Macedonia. So give proof before the churches of your love. Principle number five. Christian giving is a proof of genuine love. The Bible says right there. And why is that? Because it's all of grace. It's all of grace that comes from the God who is love. We love because God first loved us. And that love is often manifested by the grace of God through giving. Now, So let's piece together what we've got already so that you can see this. I want you to begin to see that one of the most important theological lessons that we can see in this passage is principle number six. Christian giving is evidence of saving grace. Christian giving is evidence of God's saving grace. You know the Bible gives us All kinds of tests, all kinds of markers to see if we are in the faith, as Paul says. Evidences of God's grace in our life. 
give us, he gives us grounds for assurance. We can, we can see these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, I want you to know something. Here's another one. If you're keeping a list of all the markers of, of God's grace that gives you assurance and salvation, here's another one. Christian generosity. You remember Paul's lengthy discussion about the spiritual gifts? Who did he write that to? Same people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he, he, he writes about all these spiritual gifts. Why does he do that? Because the spiritual gifts were exploding in this church. Sometimes he needed to tamper it down a little bit. Now, listen to how, you don't have to turn there, but listen to how he opens that letter. I want you to hear the similarities of this passage. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge. Sound similar? Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift. That's what he said a year ago. And in that letter, he goes on to write three chapters about these Christian graces or these spiritual gifts that come from the Holy Spirit and that were apparently just overflowing in this church. Now look at what he does. Verse 7. But as you excel or overflow or abound in everything, he starts listing some of those gifts. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You know what that reminds me of? What Jesus told the rich young ruler. You lack one thing. You lack one thing. In other words, verse 7, he's, he's saying, you superabound in many graces, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, but you lack one thing. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's apply this to ourselves. GCC. Grace Community Church, look at how God's grace abounds in this church. Look at the strong faith, the, the good theology, the zeal for missions, the genuine love that we have for one another. We excel in these things. Don't let this grace pass us by. See that we excel in this grace also. Don't we want everything from heaven that heaven will give? Let us not find ourselves lacking in the grace of Christian giving. Let us not be a church that's rich in knowledge and poor in generosity. Which leads me to this very important point, number seven. Christian giving actually gives. Sounds obvious, right? Just move on. Why do I say that? Because there are some people in this church right here today that are, not everybody, obviously, that are in, there's some people in this church that are in the same boat as the Corinthians. They thought about giving. They talked about giving. They planned on giving. They were ready to give. They even started to give. But they haven't actually given like they're supposed to. Look at verse 10 and 11. A year ago, he said, you started not only to do this work, but to also to have a desire to do it. So now finish doing it. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring actually might be matched by you completing it. Thinking about it, talking about it, planning about it is all good, and hopefully it's a sign of grace that's at work in you, but it's time to follow through, Paul says. Now finish doing it. 
See that you excel in this act of grace also. Like John said, little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Christian giving actually gives. Why? Because God sees to it. This is how it finishes. God sees to it. By working grace in our heart. He puts grace in our heart. And I want you to see some of those principles that flow out of this main idea that God's grace in in, in causing us to give. First, it's voluntary. This giving is a voluntary act from the heart. It's voluntary. I want you to see how all this works together. It's voluntary. See number See verse number 3. The Macedonians, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. The Apostle Paul didn't command them. They gave of their own accord. Literally, they gave of their own choosing, it means. In other words, they gave because they wanted to. They gave because they wanted to. As a matter of fact, they begged Paul for the privilege. They begged Paul for the privilege. Paul didn't command them, and he's not commanding the Corinthians either. Verse 80 says, I say this not as a commandment. Paul, man, I don't have time to explore, but all through this letter, he's bending over backwards to make sure that they don't think he's commanding them. Now, I'm not twisting your arm. This is not a command. This benefits you, he says, verse 10. In chapter 9, verse 5, he says, this is what I'm hoping for, a willing gift. Like the Macedonians, a willing gift, not an exaction, not an extortion. I'm not here to blackmail you. I'm not holding a gun to your head. Christian giving is voluntary. Christian giving is a want to, not a have to. You give because you want to give. You give from the heart. This man on the front row here, Dustin Cook, put me on the spot last week. He said, come back next week. I wrote this down in my Evernote. Come back next week and Greg is going to tell you how much you're supposed to give. End quote. Can I get a drummer to come play? A drum roll, please. Here's my answer. Give as much as you want to. Give as much as you want to. Better yet, I'll just quote the inspired word of God, chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves and creates a cheerful giver. There it is in a nutshell. There's the answer, Dustin. Write that down. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart. Is your heart happy to give 10%? Give 10%. You want to use the old, obsolete, old covenant as a guide and give that 23.3% with a smile? Praise the Lord. You don't want to give anything? By all means, don't give anything. But you make sure you pay attention to what's being communicated here. A heart that has no desire to give is not of God. A heart that gives reluctantly is not of God. A heart that gives under compulsion is not of God. A heart that gives out of self-interest, let me sow a seed to get some back, is not of God. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And because God puts cheerful giving in the heart. Christian giving is from the new covenant heart. In chapter 8, verse 16, you see God puts earnest care for the church in Titus' heart. Like God did that. That's why he cares for the church. 
Well, God does the same thing. He puts cheerful giving in the heart He created. That new covenant heart. That new creation Paul talked about in chapter 5. That powerful work of new covenant power in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. Those things He's bringing to bear on this grace too. God puts that in your heart. He shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in your heart and He puts in cheerful giving too. Remember one of the promises of the new covenant? I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. The old covenant went away, but given didn't. God funded his purposes through the old covenant commandments. And guess what? Now he does it through a new covenant heart. So, Christian giving is all of grace. Powerful, Holy Spirit-wrought grace that's put into new covenant hearts. And because this is a work of Almighty God, it will not be hindered. It won't be stopped. Not for a lack of want to, or not for a lack of means, or not for a lack of opportunity, or anything else. Look, number nine, I think. I hope I got numbered right. Christian giving is unhindered by circumstances. So now we're going to start seeing how some of this stuff actually works, actually plays out. Think about the Macedonians. What was going to stop them from giving? What was going to stop the Macedonians from giving as they had decided in their hearts? Was severe affliction going to hinder them? Was uh, extreme poverty going to hinder them? Was the Apostle Paul going to hinder them? No. As a matter of fact, by God's grace and to the surprise of Paul, those hindrances so-called actually overflowed into a wealth of generosity. See that in verse 2. Again, 8-2. In a severe affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity. I just want you to see the excuses that get shot down right there. There is no excuse for Christians not to give. They're all shot down right here in that text right there. Man, I'm sorry. We're going through a tough time right now. We're in a severe test of affliction. It just can't give right now. Man, I'm sorry. We're broke. Man. We don't really have anything to spare right now. You see how this wipes it all away? Unhindered by circumstances. The Macedonians were being persecuted, which probably caused their extreme poverty, yet God's grace overruled and produced joy and generosity. So, how much did they give? Verse 3, they gave according to their means. I'm, I'm further refining my assignment. Tell you how much to give. They gave according to their means. Principle number 10, Christian giving is proportional. It's proportional to your means. Earlier, when, when Paul wrote to them in the 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, each of you, everybody, is to put something, how much, aside and store it up as he may prosper. Proportional. How much should you be giving? Give as God has give as you have decided in your heart, give according to your means, give as you may prosper. And so here's a very important principle to remember, especially when you hear about some big donation, especially in the secular world. God doesn't care about the dollar amount. He, he owns every star. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
He doesn't care about the dollar amount. He sees the heart. Generosity is not measured in dollars, but in percentages. You don't believe me? Ask Jesus. Remember the poor widow? Remember the poor widow that put in her two pennies? Notice the description of, who, of her. Poor widow. Sounds like extreme poverty, severe test of affliction. Poor widow. You remember what Jesus said about the poor widow? And before I remind you, don't let this fact escape you. Jesus went there for the expressed purpose of people watching. Actually, more specifically, he went there for the express purpose of tithe watching. And he saw more than just what they put in. He saw their bank accounts. He saw their balance sheets. It says in Mark 12, 41, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people. He got good eyes, too. And watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins in. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all these. They contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, she has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Which leads to the next principle. Christian giving is proportional, but it's also sacrificial. Christian giving is somewhat sacrificial. Notice I put that in principle. I'll get to that in a minute. But notice how Paul expresses both these things in one sentence, both proportional and sacrificial. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. In other words, their giving was proportional. They didn't give $10 million. Why? Because they didn't have $10 million. Yet, in the midst of severe affliction and extreme poverty, they gave sacrificially, just like the poor widow woman. Now, why does Paul tell the Corinthians this? Number one, because this is the kind of giving we're supposed to have. This sacrificial giving really is a principle of Christian generosity. And number two, he means to really admonish them. He means to really motivate them, to stir them up, to prick that new covenant heart. The Macedonians are a God-given example of what sacrificial grace-giving actually looks like. And there are other examples. The widow woman, Zacchaeus, the day he was saved, gave half his stuff away. The New Testament church, they sold what they had and they laid it at the feet of the apostles. You got the negative example about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. And guess what? He wouldn't part with his money and walked away from Christ. But who does Paul hold out as the extreme example? Not the widow woman, not Zacchaeus, not the Macedonians, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Look at how he expresses substitutionary atonement. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There's another nuance of that word grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus. It's not the grace that motivates giving in paragraph 1. But it's the grace that you've been given through the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. Think about it. What did Christ give up for you? Are you not motivated to give up anything for him? The creator of the universe 
humbled Himself and became a man. Though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. He lived a life of extreme poverty in a cursed land with nowhere to lay His head. And He suffered the, the very most severe test of affliction ever imagined on a Roman cross under the wrath of God. And why did He do all that? For your sake. For your sake he became poor. So that you of all people, me of all people, the chief of sinners of all people, that I might become rich. Not in silver or gold. Something far more valuable. Something that no man on earth could ever purchase on his own. I don't care who you are. Total forgiveness and eternal life. What's it worth? Don't forget the grace you have received. Don't forget the sacrificial grace giving of the Son of God. Don't forget the sacrificial grace giving of God the Father. God gave up His greatest treasure for the most wicked sinners. God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up. For us all. No wonder Paul ends this section with a doxology. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. There's a quote by Robert Murray McShane on this topic of giving. It convicted me a long time ago. And I've kept it since. I want you to listen to it. What would have become of us if Christ had been as saving of his blood as some men are of their money? What would have become of us? Where would we be if Christ had been as saving or as stingy with his blood as some people are with their money? Where would we be? Ruin. Everlasting ruin. You can't outgive God. And God doesn't expect you to. That would be foolish. How can I, you can't outgive God. You can't outgive me. He doesn't expect you to. Christian giving should be voluntary, cheerful, proportional, and sacrificial, but it's not meant to be impoverishing. This is what that bullet point somewhat sacrificial means. Yes, Christ is the ultimate example. Yes, the widow woman is very highly commended by Jesus Christ. But Paul here is laying out the normative principle. This is the normative principle for giving that we have here. Now, if God truly lays it on your heart to give away everything for the sake of Christ and His church, then so be it. But take note of the norm. Verses 12 and 13. If the readiness is there, i.e. cheerful giver, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So, so what is acceptable? Verse 12, giving according to what a person has, not what they don't have. So what is Paul not suggesting? Verse 13, that others should be eased and you burdened. So in other words, sacrificial, yes, but not to the point that you are burdened, not to the point that you are impoverished. No, no, God's plan is better than that. God's plan is not communism. God's plan is to share the burden across believers and across churches. In this particular case, we know of the churches of Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. But at the same time, sacrificial giving is commended. Why? Because God is actually going to supply it for you. We talked about this earlier, but he has a whole section about this. A few weeks ago, Jake was teaching on generous giving to missionaries from Philippians Four, and I wrote down this quote. He says, we do not have to fear the results of our obedience. In other words, don't worry about giving sacrificially because as Paul reminded the Philippians, the gifts that you sent me, 
That's a fragrant offering. That's a, that's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And guess what? God will supply every need of yours. In other words, don't worry about sacrificial generosity to the church because as Paul explains here in chapter 9, verse 10 and 11, it's God who supplies the seed to the sower. He's the one who's going to supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He's the one that's going to enrich you in every way to be generous. You can't outgive God. That's what that means. The Christian well of generosity will never run dry because the fountain that feeds it, the storehouses of God, is a never-ending stream. So give generously. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on this opportunity to participate in God's grace. The grace that, get, that, that comes to you and the grace that goes through you. That's what Christian giving is. Christian giving is a manifestation of God's grace, not only to you, but through you. Through you. You, you need to understand why God is giving this grace in the first place. Why is he enabling Christians to give? Why is he motivating Christians to give? It's because we, my friends, are a means to his end. Christian givers are, are, are channels of God's grace. Get that. We are channels of God's grace. Christian giving is actually a ministry of God that's happening through you. That's what they're doing here. There's a collection for the saints here to give relief to them. The word there is ministry or deaconos, where we get our word deacon. This is a ministry. So God purposes in his mind, in his heart, that he's going to help his suffering church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, how's he going to do that? Through real people, sacrificially giving real money. Like people like Timothy's relatives in Galatia, people like Lydia and the jailer in Philippi, those radically converted pagans over there in Thessalonica, some of those noble brothers in Berea, and even right here through some of these reluctant church members in Corinth who finally get motivated by Paul's ex 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 admonishment here. And this is how it still works. Think about how this, how this still plays out today. If God plans to save people in Kunming, China, or Puno, Peru, or Kishnau, Moldova, or Erbil, Iraq, what is one of the means in which he might actually use to extend that grace to more and more people around the world? I got two three-letter words for you. How might he do it? GCC. How might he do it? Y-O-U. You might be the one. Your giving might be one of the many means that God uses to actually redeem somebody from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Think about it. If God desires, and he does, if God desires to see people saved, to see saints matured, and sound, sound doctor to be held high and firm right here in Jackson, Mississippi, how is he going to do that? How might he do that? Through you, through you paying the rent, through you keeping the lights on, through you sacrificing your money, sacrificing even your time to facilitate corporate worship in this church. If God desires, and he does, to keep watch over your own soul and to preach and to teach you the word of God in season and out and to preach the gospel week in and week out to your lost children and to exalt Christ every time that door opens and lost people walk in this building, how might God do that? Through you! How? Through funding a plurality of qualified pastors to shepherd the flock and to exalt Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be a part of that? You already are. Don't you want to be more of a part of that? Do you want to be a real means of God's grace in this generation? Don't, do you, don't you feel like the Macedonians felt like in verse 4? Is your heart begging earnestly for the favor to take part in all of God is doing here? 
If it's not, then you're not seeing the privilege. You're not seeing the privilege of Christian giving like they did. It's a privilege. Number 13, it's a privilege, not an obligation. Look at verse 4. This really gives insight into the real heart of the heart of the heart of the matter. They are begging Paul for the favor, for the grace to take a part in this. They're begging for it. They're afraid of missing out. Think about the difference between the Macedonians and the Corinthians. Seems like the Macedonians are hearing about this for the first time. Maybe because Paul never wrote to them and asked. Or maybe he didn't want to burden them anymore because of their affliction and, and extreme poverty. Or maybe he was, just felt like they'd been generous enough in supporting his own ministry. But it seems like while he waited for Titus to arrive, he must have explained the situation. They said, please, let us in. Let us in. We want in. We want to be able to do, take part in this ministry. You ever heard of FOMO? F-O-M-O? The fear of missing out. That's what happened in Macedonia. Please take our money. We want to be a part of this. Don't pass us by. While the Corinthians have been talking about it for a year. And now they got cold feet. I'm not sure if they want to give at all. What's the difference between those two? I think the answer is in verse 5. The Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The Corinthians had begun to, to believe a lie. Paul has to spend the letter, half the letter trying to justify his ministry because these false apostles had been trying to discredit him. One of, the, one of the many things I think they used was they're trying to make it look like this collection was a way for Paul to get some money for himself since he had never taken any from them. So the Corinthians are kind of more concerned with their own money now than they are on the mission. Should we really give to this now? Should we really give to Paul? The Macedonians, on the other hand, they knew this money belongs to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. This is his work. This is our opportunity to give back just a little bit of what he's lavished on us. This is our chance. This is our chance to serve the king of glory. And so they gave themselves and all they had to the Lord. And to his minister and to his mission, they gave themselves to the Lord. 2,000 years ago, one of the greatest prophecies ever spoken was given when the Son of God said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And 2,000 years ago, one of the greatest enterprises ever conceived began, and it continues to this very day. Jesus is building his church with or without us, and nothing will stop him. Do you want in on that? You're already in on that. You want in on that some more? Pretend with me for a minute. Imagine this. What if Jesus Christ himself came in that door, glorified body and all, and he came up on this stage and he put a PowerPoint presentation up on that screen and he began to lay out this presentation for his next church plant. He says, I will build my church in Erbil, Iraq. Clicking through the slides, he says, here's the men that I'm going to raise up to find and shepherd my sheep. Hey, here's a few of the people I'm going to save. They will hear my voice and they will follow me. And at the end of that presentation, Jesus Christ said, do you want in on that? FOMO should be the response. Fear of missing out. I hope we would all beg him earnestly for the favor of taking part in his ministry. Because of the privilege of serving Jesus Christ. And here's what's so ironic about the whole thing. It really wouldn't cost us anything. Because Christian giving blesses the giver. He provides it all. And it's all for him. It's all for his glory. Several times he talks about how this is the way God is glorified. This is how we store up treasures in heaven. 
And this is how God is glorified in all the earth. This is one of the means in which he does that. God gives us grace. The grace comes from God. And the glory goes back to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. In love, you gave your son. You gave your son to rescue us from ruin. And you've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We owe you everything and there's nothing we can pay you with because it's all yours. Father, I pray for this grace. I pray for the Holy Spirit to work in our church the way it did in Macedonia, to work in our church the way it did in Corinth. Use us, Lord. Don't pass us by. Don't let us peek in faith. May today be the day you set us on an even stronger course. This is your work. This is your work. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. Lord, build your house. In Jesus' name, amen.